Well, good morning. My name is Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. Grab a Bible and go to Exodus chapter 32. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a blue one in the, uh, under the seat in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take this one with you. We want you to own a Bible. Um, we are working our way through the book of Exodus, and we have gotten through where God has um, they had a covenant ceremony. And then Moses goes up into the cloud on the mountain, and God has been giving him instructions. And we're told that he's been there for about 40 days. And so what we've been looking at the past several weeks are the instructions that God gave him for the tabernacle, for uh, the altar, for the priestly garments. And the whole point of all the things that God has been giving the people of Israel and these instructions that he's been given to Moses is that Moses would go back down the mountain. They would create these things, build them together so that God can dwell among them, so that he can have a place among them and that he can be their God and they can be his people, that they're going to be set apart over and against all the peoples of the world to belong to him, and they're going to have a tabernacle where his presence dwells. Now, we said a while back that he's remaking some of what was lost in the Garden of Eden. It's not perfect. He's not going to just dwell with them the way that God dwelled with Adam and Eve, but he's working back to, he's going to have a people in his place that he dwells among, that his presence is there. It's it's not the same, but he's restoring some of this. And so that's where we are. I'm going to pray, and we're going to get into the text together. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see your glory in this passage. We pray that you would help us to see our sin And that, Lord, through your spirit, we would run to Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to read Exodus 32 together today. And so I want you to start in Exodus 31. You're welcome. Exodus 31, verse 18. This is how uh, Exodus 31 is ending. And it says, And he, that's God, gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So God has finished speaking with Moses, and he gives him the tablets of the testimony, and he's saying, okay, now go. Go do all that I've commanded you. Go down the mountain, and let's get this thing started. That's where we are. Chapter 32. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... Oh, no. No, 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 no. He's not delayed. He's coming. That's, that's the tension we should immediately feel when we read this. No, he's got the tablets and he's coming. He's not, he's, you're wrong. He's on his way. It's a big mountain. He's been up there. He had a lot to get, but he's coming. It says, but when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now, Aaron is Moses' brother, and Aaron has been left in charge. Aaron and her. We don't see her in this story, but we do see Aaron. Gathered to Aaron. Aaron's going to be the high priest. Aaron doesn't know that. But Moses is going to come down and say, hey, we're about to make you some beautiful, glorious garments, and you're going to be high priest. They gathered themselves to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. (sighs) 
That's about as bad as it gets. They're like, hey, Moses walked up into that cloud, but he didn't come back. We don't know what happened to him. And so here's our suggestion. Now hear us out, because it's going to be the dumbest suggestion you've ever heard. (laughs) Up, make us gods who can go before us. Now, if you'll remember back, not 40 days ago for them, or just that 40 days ago for them, they had a covenant ceremony where Moses read the Ten Commandments, and they practiced it. They said, everything you say, everything you command us, we will do. And then the next day, they had a covenant ceremony. They had a sacrifice. He read it again, and they say, everything you command us, we will do. Okay, first commandment, you will have no other gods before me. Second commandment, do not make any idols. Up, make us some gods. Moses has delayed. We would like to aggressively break the first two commandments. This is a rejection of God, a rejection of his commandments. This is baffling. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. What we wanted Aaron to say was, no, shut up. You're not allowed to talk for like three weeks. Go back into the camp. But that's not what he says. He says, I'm going to need some gold. Now, these were slaves. Do you know how they all have gold? God blessed them with it when he brought them out of Egypt. He helped them plunder the Egyptians. So they take what God has blessed them with. They give it to Aaron. Verse 3. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. Okay, so that word calf, when we hear it, we think baby. But it really means in the first one to three years, so in its prime. It doesn't make it much better, but it's some sort of a ox, and that's what it's going to be called later in in the book of Psalms. It's an ox, and it's a healthy one, a young, healthy one. That's what he makes. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Now, you need to notice something interesting happened in this passage. Verse 4, these are your gods, O Israel. Now, that gods there is the word Elohim, and it's a plural word for God, gods. It is at times used to talk about God, the one true God. They call him Elohim, which is a plural word. And so it can be translated God or gods. But 90-something percent of the time, and primarily in the book of Exodus and Genesis, when they refer to God as Elohim, all of the verbs and sentence structure around it are singular. 
So it's singular verb, singular, 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 and then God's plural, Elohim, which can be taken as God's, but it's used to refer to God. Here they use the word Elohim, which doesn't give us much clarity, but the sentence structure around it is plural. So this is a pretty good, fair translation. Some of your Bible translations might translate it differently, but this is a fair translation that what they are saying is, here are your gods. This is representative of your gods, plural. And so it's then Aaron, though, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Capital L-O-R-D. We've already talked about this. That's the divine name for God, Yahweh, or Jehovah, depending on how you, you insert vowels. And so he says, no, it's the Lord. So it seems as if they're saying, let's break commandments one and two. And Aaron's trying to stew him down to just breaking the second one. So he's calling it the Lord, but he's made a calf. But that's what's happening here is that they've said, this is who we're going to worship. This is what's going to go before us. Calvin says this is John Calvin, who's one of the reformers. He says, this is monstrous madness mixed with stupidity. And he points out, the cloud's still there. Like, God's presence is still, what are y'all, what are y'all doing? This is, this is insanity. This is the nation of Israel's fall. If Adam and Eve fell in the garden and brought sin into the world, as God's restoring this, the nation of Israel collectively comes together to do the same thing. That they reject the primary thing that God has taught them. And so where we see Adam and Eve in the garden and then they fall into sin and everything falls apart, we see God renewing, restoring this relationship, building it back, fixing it, rescuing them. He's going to dwell among the people and they immediately undo it. And if you are not a Christian, and I know that even some Christians struggle with this concept, but if you're not a Christian... What you can often think is, God has rules, I'm supposed to follow the rules, and he's mad at me for not following the rules. And you can think that it seems wildly unfair, and we'll say things like, how could God send good people to hell? How could, I, I know somebody who, they're just nice, they're a good person, and I just don't see how God could send them to hell. But what you've got to wrap your head around is, this is the primary sin is a rejection of God and a worship of something else. This rejection of God and a worship of something else, that God has designed the world that he might relate to us as creatures, that we might love him and know him, and, and, and he might endear himself to us, and that we might belong to him, and that we might be his people, and there would be joy and delight in that, that he is the greatest above all things. And what we do is we pick something else to worship and love. It says, verse 6, And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. This is the same thing they did in the covenant ceremony with him 40 days ago. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That word carries um, debaucherous sexual connotations. And that Paul even refers to don't commit sexual immorality like they did. So this becomes a wild party. 
they are off the rails. And this is what Psalm 106 says about this, is we're to understand this idea of worshiping something else. Psalm says this, they made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. But that's that's the primary sin, is that we exchange the glory of God for some created thing, some lesser thing, that we swap him out for something else. That's what Paul says in Romans, that we exchange the glory of the eternal God for images resembling beasts and crawling things, that we exchange the glory of God for a creature rather than the creator. And so this is idolatry. This is the worship of something else. This is the placing your hope in something else. And so I want to trace out a few of the things that go into this. First, they say to him, up, make us gods who will go before us. If we're going to worship something else, we usually, we're going to pick something that we're going to base our whole life around. This is going to go before us. This is going to give us purpose. This is going to give us direction. So that if you are worshiping something other than God, you've picked a thing that wakes you up in the morning that gives you a reason to live, that gives you guidance for how you're going to spend your days. It goes before you. It's the thing that helps you know who you are. It's the thing that you look at and you say, if I just have this, then I'll be happy, then I'll be fulfilled, and then everything will be right. That's idolatry. That's the thing we pick that we're going to spend our time and devote ourselves to. The other thing that if you'll look at this, if you'll notice, is that we often take something that God has given us. So they took the gold that God had given them. We often take a good thing that God gave us and make it an ultimate thing. Y'all know that cake is delicious, right? But if you only eat cake, you die. I'm pretty sure. It's not good for you. I don't know if anybody's ever tested it. It's meant to be in the spot that cake is supposed to be in. A delicious, good gift, but not an ultimate thing. And that's how everything works, where God gives you health, or he gives you physical ability, or he makes you attractive, or he makes you intelligent, or he gives you a good job, or whatever. He blesses you with a thing, and it's meant to stay in the spot for that. In the food pyramid of your life, it's meant to be there. Where it takes up that amount of space, and it's a good gift, it's a blessing, but it's not meant to shift into an ultimate thing. But the problem is, we take good gifts that God gives us, and we make them ultimate things. Most of the time when we pick an idolatrous something, it's not a bad thing. It's usually a blessing that we just make into an ultimate thing, a God-level thing. Like children, they become what you worship and serve and build your life around. They become what makes you say, I know I'm okay if. Or romance becomes what you worship and serve and build your life around. I know I'm okay if this goes before me. This sets my day. This helps me know who I am. Or work. Or attractiveness. Or physical health. Or whatever. We pick something that's usually a good thing that God has given us. And we place it in an ultimate spot. And therefore it gets out of order. And it's wrong. The other thing that I think we should notice from this passage about idols. Is that they take work. They don't move themselves. They don't build themselves. They take our effort, our work to accomplish. That he had to craft this into a calf. And so whatever your idol is, it's usually something that you're saying, I'm building my life around this. This helps me know who I am. 
It's usually a good thing, and it's usually something that you're putting in a lot of work for. It takes a lot of energy and time. So if you want to try to discern where is that in my life, look for those three things. And you'll find, most likely, something that you have built an idol out of. And this is the fundamental sin. This is the sin. And so they commit the sin, which is a rejection of God, a worship of something else. They undo his whole plan, which is he's, they're going to belong to him, and he's going to be among them, and they're just like, we're, we're going to move on. Now, Christians, we're in danger of doing this too. We're in danger of taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. But we're also in danger of doing what Aaron seems to be doing. Remaking God, where he says it's the Lord, we're remaking Jesus into something else. I want to, I want to point something out to you about, uh, I, that I love about this psalm passage. They exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. I love how much shade is thrown in those three words. An ox, like an, like an ox, like one that eats grass. And you immediately go, yeah, it's so dumb. And it is. But do you know why they picked an ox? Because everyone around them picked an ox. That's why they picked an ox. Because an ox to them represented cultivation. You needed an ox to get crops. So it rep represented strength. It represented uh, being fertile, both in uh, cultivation and in your fields, but also in your house. And everybody had an ox. And so what we're in danger of is going, that's so dumb. But I don't think we can say, that's so dumb, I would never do that. I think what we have to say is, that's so dumb, I'd pick something that more suits my taste. I would pick something way better than a calf. And we see this. You, you'll talk to people who have just rebranded Jesus. And the more you talk to them, the more you understand what they're talking about. It's like, hi, ah, that Jesus just sounds a lot like a capitalist. He doesn't have a lot to say about loving the poor. He doesn't have a lot to say about how the love of money is dangerous. He, he just, he's kind of you've twisted this up. Like if you've ever seen a picture of Jesus holding an AR-15, it's like you've rebranded him to something that you like. So you'll talk to somebody and they'll have like, you're like, that Jesus just sounds a lot like a Republican. Or you talk to somebody and you'll, or they'll be a part of a church and you're just like, that Jesus, man, he sounds a whole lot like he's bought into the idea that God just wants me to be happy. And that doesn't mean the rejection of sin and the embracing of him is our ultimate delight. It means the pursuit of whatever I want. Or you talk to him and uh, talk to someone and it's like, ah, you really think Jesus won't tell you who you're allowed to love? You don't think he's going to come in and say, this is bad for you, this is wrong for you, that he's going to just co-sign anything you have to say? Because you sound a lot more like the sexual revolution. You sound a lot more like things I'm reading on the internet. You sound a lot more like what's popular right now than you, than you line up with this. And this happens where he gets rebranded. And so we've changed it. We've crafted him into something that fits with us better, that actually we change him so that we don't have to change. And then we say, it's a feast to the Lord. And it's wrong. That he's been reshaped 
And sometimes we do this intentionally, and sometimes we do it unintentionally due to our sin. But this is what it says here. I want you all to understand that it's not just the times that we're doing that, but it's every time we sin that we're practicing some form of idolatry. Because it says they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. And you know that every time we sin, in some small form, we're practicing that. We're forgetting our God who's done great things for us. We're forgetting that Jesus is our ultimate delight. I'll, I'll give you an example. I know, I'm not trying to brag, I am a pastor, but I know I'm not supposed to lie. I know that. I learned it in seminary. I didn't get an MDiv, but I did learn this. Don't lie. But I know I'm not supposed to lie. But y'all know there are times where I catch myself lying. Sometimes I don't even catch myself. I just think about it later. And in that moment, I didn't want to please Jesus. I wanted something else. I wanted to please another person. I wanted them to think highly of me. I wanted them to not think lowly of me. I wasn't even fighting for highly. I was just fighting for neutral. I wanted to not have to leave my house and help them. There's a lot of things we might lie for. And what you might lie about and what I might lie about might be different. But the reality is in that moment, we want something more than we want Jesus. We've forgotten how good he is. And we do this with all of our sin. We do this when we gossip. We want something more than we want Jesus. We do this when we should help someone, we make excuses. We do this when we should be generous and we aren't. We do this when we commit sexual sin. We just want something more than we want Jesus in that moment, and that's idolatry. We're, we're telling ourselves, this will make me happy, this will fill me up, this will give me joy, this will give me delight, and it'll do it better than Jesus does. I know I'm not supposed to have sex, but I really want a boyfriend. And so whatever you're willing to sin to have is ultimately something that you value more than God. And so I don't think we can read this passage and go, what fools, without acknowledging, I think I'm at the base of the mountain. I'm not up there with Moses. I don't think I'm the one up there doing what's right. I think I'm the one down there pulling my earrings out. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This would be like on your honeymoon, watching your wedding video and seeing your spouse kissing someone in the wedding party in the video. I mean, just as, as cataclysmically awful as you can possibly imagine the, the derailing, heartbreaking nature of this. He's got them. He's rescued them. They're going to be his people. He's going to dwell among them. And they say, we don't know where Moses went. It's been too long. And it's an utter rejection of all of that. And the Lord said to Moses, 
I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a, a great nation of you. He says, leave me alone. I'm going to destroy them, and we'll restart with you. Eleven. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your, your people, whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Did you notice that God said, your people who you brought out of Egypt? And then Moses says, no, your people who you brought out of Egypt. God says, they're not mine anymore. And Moses says, no, they are. They're your people. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever." Moses says, no, remember your promises. Remember who you are. Remember that they belong to you. Remember, be you. That's what he's saying. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now you can tie yourself in a theological knot in this passage, trying to understand how does a sovereign God who's planned all of this have a moment where he relents? But he relents of something he spoke about doing. And in the way he spoke about this, in some ways he invited Moses to be an intermediary. But this text is written so that we would see how much the people of Israel need an intermediary. They don't know it, but they needed Moses on the mountain pleading on their behalf. They needed someone to stand in between them and God because they, they need someone to stand in between them and God because of their sin. And we're supposed to see God relenting out of his own goodness and out of his own choice and will to include Moses in how this works. But we're also meant to see Moses who whined and came up with weird excuses about why he should not have to go in the first place, who now stands with God and says, please. Remember your promises and be good to them. And God relents from what he had spoken about doing. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, the text just zoomed us beautifully in on how wonderful these tablets are. And it did that on purpose. Verse 17. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, so Joshua was midway. Moses went up, been talking to God. Joshua's just been hanging out in the middle because he's waiting for Moses. He's been camping out above the camp, but below the cloud. And Moses comes down to him. He sees Moses. He hears the noise down there. And Joshua, who leads in military things, says this, There is a noise of war in the camp. 
Verse 18, but he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. How bad do you sing that it sounds like war? (laughs) But it also means that we're not supposed to picture them holding hands and chanting in unison, but a debaucherous, chaotic celebration. He says, no, that's a party. And as soon as they came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. That's why it zoomed in and told us how wonderful they were. And it's this picture of how wonderful everything was about to be and how shattered everything is now. He was about to be exactly as God wants with them. He's restoring it. He's building them back into his people. He's going to dwell among them, and it's ruined. I know a story of a lady who felt like her husband was not holding up his marriage covenant, and when he came home, she had her china out, and she was just breaking their wedding china while she was talking to him. He said, what are you doing? She said, I'm caring about our covenant as much as you do. That's what this is. He took the calf they had made. So he just marches in. 80-something-year-old Moses. He's hot. Took the calf they had made and burned it with fire, ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink it. All this stuff still going on, snatches it down, burns it. I don't know how long he has to wait before burning it to grind it, but he turns it not into a calf, but he's not done. It's not like he melted it and was like, next step. No, he grinds that into powder, and then he stands there throwing it in the water. And he's like, here you go. Y'all going to drink that. gold lip fools. It doesn't say that part, but I'll just... He made the people of Israel drink it. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil, which to be fair, they haven't been the greatest. They followed them around complaining and whining and surrounded them on multiple times and tried to fight them. Like, they haven't been, this hasn't been the easiest group of people to lead. But it's not because these people are worse than other people. It's because these people are people. And if we wandered around the desert together, we'd also do some of this mess. He says, you know the people that they're set on evil in verse 23. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. 
I feel like that's kind of how his story had to go. It had to start breaking down at the end. Y'all know he was quoting word for word what they said to him? Like, he nails it. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, they brought you up. They said, the man who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I said to them, let me have your gold. And then I took the gold. And then there was, I know, remember there was a fire. I threw, I, I threw the gold in the fire. I don't think I did anything else. I think then there was a magic calf. <laughs> you ever talk to a kid in the middle of them being caught in something? That's what this sounds like to me. What happened? Well, he pushed me and then, whew, I don't like what comes after and then. Give me a second. How do I say I punched him in the face? That's, that's, what, that's where we're at. This is pitiful. Out came this calf. No response from Moses. I think we're to assume he stares at Aaron like you've got to be kidding me. 25, and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, if you were tempted to think Aaron didn't have a choice, this passage says, no, Aaron could have led. No, Aaron could have had a backbone. And I, I want to take just a second. There are a lot of people in this, this room that lead things, but I want to take just a second to speak to men. Culturally right now, you're told a lot that you're the problem and that men are bad. That's not true. Bad men are bad. Passive men are bad. And you need to be real careful the times that you say, ah, it's them. When it was really, ah, you should have led. Verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And I think he has to say this a bunch. He's calling people to himself. All the sons of Levi gathered around him. That's his tribe. Moses and Aaron of the tribe of Levi. Levi shows up. He said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Stop this. Find the people who are doing it and stop it. And so they do. Verse 28. The sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Faithfulness to God is often costly, but it's worth it. And prior to this, it does seem like it was in God's intent that the tribe of Levi would be, as a tribe, Levitical priests. But it's not mentioned. And it seems like in this moment is where God seals it, that it's not just going to be the sons of Aaron, but it's going to be the whole tribe of Levi that's going to get to carry the being ordained, set apart for his service. Seems like it. Verse 30. So it settles down. It goes from off the rails, 
to a lot of death, the amount of excitement, this is quiet and awkward and sad. And the next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord. He walks up this mountain. takes a while. And he said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive them. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And if you don't love Moses yet, you should love him now. Because when he said, maybe I can make atonement, he meant, maybe he'll take me instead. Maybe I can swap places with you. You have sinned a great sin. It's not that they've killed all the sinners. It's no, collectively, we've still so cataclysmically failed and broken this covenant. Judgment is on us. But maybe... Maybe he'll let me swap out. So he says, if you'll forgive him, forgive him. But if you won't, if that can't happen, can you take me instead? Thirty-three. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. God says, no. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. We're going to come back to 33 and 34. I want to finish the chapter, read 35. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. So if we were unsure earlier as to whether or not Moses believed Aaron's story, he does not. But look at 33 and 34. The Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So who's that? That's all of them. But... Now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Now, 32 through 34 are meant to be read together. And this gets clearer because at first you read this and go, oh, okay, good. Good, right? Like crisis averted. But no, this isn't good at all. Because what he says is, Go, I'll send my angel. The day I show up, everyone pays for their sin. And in 33, he's going to say, I'm not coming because there's no way for me to come and not kill everybody. The safest thing, not the best thing, but the safest thing for them is that I'm not a part of this anymore. 
I'll get you to the promised land. But the whole plan of me belonging to you and you belonging to me is done. And this is where I think we've got to wrap our head around idolatry and sin. Sometimes we say things like, well, it's just not that big a deal. I don't know why he cares that much. I don't know why he can't just get over it. And I want you to know that the covenant he made with them and the covenant that he desires for us is that we would belong to him and he would belong to us. This is why the Bible talks about it as adultery. And it's like you saying, I don't know what she's so bent out of shape about. I know that they're married, but why can't he just have a girlfriend? It's like that. It's because that's the whole point of marriage is that you won't have a girlfriend. That was what you committed to. And that's the whole design here is that we would belong solely to him and they would belong solely to him and he would belong to them and there would be delight and joy in this. And he says, I can't come because your sin stands in the way. And I want you to know this. The thing you want most in the world is that God would visit you and that you would belong to him. The thing you crave and desire is that you would be able to delight in him because he is wonderful. That's the thing you want most. But the thing you can't have and that you should fear is that God would show up and you would be in your sin. What he's wanting is for him to belong to them. But if he shows up, and their sin is there. So the thing I most want is to get to belong to God. And the thing I most fear is that he'd show up and I'd be in my sin. And what we needed and what they needed was for God to say yes to Moses. Can you take me and forgive their sin? And God says no. Because Moses is a sinner. He doesn't even get to go into the promised land. But what we needed was God to say yes. So that we can have him visit us. We can belong to him but not be in our sin. We need somebody to go up the mountain and God to say yes, you can atone for their sin. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus does what Moses can't do because Jesus is God who becomes a man. And he's a man so he can stand on our side and he can stand in our place and he can live a perfect life, but he's God so that he can live sinlessly and he can actually atone. And so where Moses fails, Jesus succeeds. Moses walks up the mountain and says, can you take me instead? And God says, no. And Mo Jesus walks up the mountain and says, can you take me instead? instead? And God says, yes. And that's what Peter comes and he proclaims in Acts 3, says this. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That if we run to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, he forgives because he's able to. And those are your options. Be in your sin and be blotted out or have Jesus blot your sin out. Because there is a day when God visits. And when he does, he will visit the sin upon the people. They'll pay for it. But if you've trusted in Jesus, your sin's been paid for. There is no sin to visit upon you. Y'all, this is the tension throughout the whole Bible. That's what's going to be carried out throughout the rest of Exodus and moving forward is how is God going to have a people that belong to him? How is he going to fix this problem because they're all sinful? How will he ever bridge this gap? And the answer is Jesus. 
Jesus is the one who unties this so that we can have God and not have our sin. Because Jesus can blot our sin out. And if you don't love Jesus, you should love him now. You should see that he walks up the mountain and says, can you take me instead? And God says, yes. And Jesus dies so that you won't be in your sin, so that you can have what you ultimately desire, which is God. And all the delight and all the life that comes with that. Let's pray. Lord, we're, we're sinners. And we're so thankful for Jesus that he blots out our sin, that we have hope in you and you alone. And so, Lord, may we trust in you, may we worship you, may we delight in you, may we run from our idolatry to you. In Jesus' name, amen. The band's going to come back up, and I want you to know your hope is not that you will not be an idolater. Your hope is that Jesus walks up the mountain and pays for idolaters. That's what Moses walked up there to do. Can I pay the debt of their idolatry? And Jesus walks up and doesn't say, they're all perfectly worshiping, they're all perfectly loving, they're all perfectly, their hearts set on me. He, he goes up and says, can I pay the debt of idolaters? That's our hope. And that's what we're going to sing about and rejoice in right now, is that our hope is Jesus and only Jesus and nothing else.